Good morning, everybody. So good to see you this morning. Would you open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 12? We're going to study one of those passages that sometimes that we can be so familiar with, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice because we think we know it. It's just so easy. Uh, I think these are mornings that we want to ask the Lord, give us, Lord, give us fresh eyes for familiar things. Uh, because it's an account of Palm Sunday. Um, and I want the kids, ages 5 to 5th grade, to be listening really closely. Because at about halfway through the sermon, you're going to help me in preaching the sermon. Okay, I'm going to call you up here. You're going to help me. I, I could use a few of the parents, too, to come. Because we have a pretty good number of kids. So this would be kids ages 5 to 5th grade. Please listen closely right now so that you're going to better be able to help me when you come up here. Eric mentioned last week that we studied uh, the, the account of Mary worshiping Jesus uh, through the expression of breaking open the vial of perfume. Remember, it was worth a year of salary. She poured it out upon his head and feet. And, and last week, we spoke about how Jesus said that this, was, this anointing was to prepare him for his burial. But you know, there's another reason in Scripture that anointings are done. And that's to anoint the king that God has given to his people. And that's exactly what we're going to be studying this morning. The entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So if you'll join me in uh, John chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd had been with that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Heavenly Father, um, we just simply ask this. Would you open our eyes, melt our hearts, give us faith, guide us by the word, lead us by the spirit to follow Jesus because of who he is and not for who we want him to be. We ask this for your glory and for the godly good of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Test one, two. Okay, great. Yeah, I was wondering if I was going to have one hand tied behind my back. That's what that feels like for me. I had a wonderful conversation with our regional leader, Daryl Scheel, when we were at uh, the Regional Assembly of Elders uh, uh, a couple weeks ago now, and I want to share a little bit of that with you, because it was, it was really illuminating for my own heart. I think it will be helpful for your hearts, and I think it really ties in for what the text is, is getting across to us this morning. There's, there's no one in this room who hasn't been hurt or disappointed by somebody. Nobody. We've all been hurt. We've, it, it's a fallen world. We've all had the experience of being hurt and disappointed either by a specific person, or sometimes it could even be by an organization. And, and what makes it harder is that some of these people and organizations you thought would be the ones that would never hurt or disappoint you. Some of these sorrows have been specific and traumatic. Others came over a period of years where again and again, multiple people or multiple organizations have been hurtful. So because of our sin nature, so really want to keep bringing it back to our sin nature, guys. The stresses and pressures of the world don't make us sinners, right? 
there's already a problem in our hearts. We have a pre-existing condition, don't we, as sinners? We're born into this world as sinners. So nothing on the outside of us makes us sinners, but it certainly can shape the way we sin. And it can, it can shape the way we process through how to handle hurt and heartache and sorrow. Well, because of the sin nature we all inherited from Adam's fall, we all tend to react the same way to being hurt and disappointed by others. And here's what I would propose the way we act. We all tend to create our own ideal of how we want and expect people or organizations to treat us. It's a defense mechanism to be sure, but, but it still is this ideal, right? We're, we, we, we don't we don't posture ourselves as being anti-relationship, but we do have an ideal that we create. And then we expect people to live up to those ideals. And then, guess what? Is anybody going to live up to your ideal? No way. No way. No one's going to live up to our ideals. But isn't it weird that if we're not thinking biblically, we can feel very justified to place the blame on the party that didn't live up to my ideal and then move on from those people in hopes of finding someone else who can live up to our standards and not hurt us anymore. Sometimes moving on can be wise and appropriate. So there could certainly be situations like that. But would you ever, have you ever stopped to think of this? Sadly, though, sometimes the very people or organizations we leave could have actually been the very person or organization that God had provided to be a means of grace for our godly good. And our blessing, if we would trust him and not look for greener pastures somewhere else. This is so so true in my life. I have, I have had so many reconstructions of ideals. And I, you, you've heard the stories of the sorrows I grew up under as a kid and uh, abuse in my home and violence and alcoholism and all of that. It just, it just set me from a very young age to try to be defensive by creating these ideal worlds that no one can live up to and that affected Jan. I love this woman so much, and yet I was scared to death to marry her. I was scared to death because, as great as you are, you didn't live up, honey, to my ideals. <laughs> and I almost missed one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given me besides Jesus. Thanks for hanging in there with me, babe. I was in a church in New Orleans, precious church. I'm so blessed to have been able to be a pastor in two churches that I love dearly. And oh, but that didn't come without heartache. There's a pastor there that I, that I had hopes and expectations about, and he didn't live up to my expectations. I said, honey, do you remember when I was saying, let's go find another church? Let's go find another church. This was the church that the Lord wanted to use to actually call me into pastoral ministry years later. And I almost left blaming others for a wrong expectation in my heart. You know what? I'm a Christian just like you. So I know you see me as a pastor up here and all that, but please, first and foremost, I'm a Christian just like you. Do you know I've been hurt in church a lot now, part of that's being a pastor, right? And for those who are wondering if God's calling you to pastoral ministry, we're not complaining. We shouldn't be complaining about being hurt in church because we follow a suffering servant. And any, how can any pastor then not say, well, then, Lord, how can I expect any different as I am willing to suffer and serve your people the way you did for me? There have been so many times that I've been hurt in church and just felt like, Maybe this is where I turn in my resignation notice. We tend to build our own, if, if, if we tend to build our own ideal world about how we want other people to be toward us, do you think that maybe we can do the same thing with Jesus? 
One of the ways the Lord is using the gospel of John in my life is to convict me of how stinking self-righteous I am. I am so self-righteous. And, and the way it's coming out is that I, I, when I read these accounts of people who have their own ideal of who the Messiah should be and what he should do for them and when he should do it for them, and when he doesn't live up to their expectations, they quickly move on to who they think will serve them and save them. Not from sin, but from their circumstances and their situations. And I can be so stinking self-righteous and thinking, how could these people turn away so quickly from someone so obviously wonderful? These people inherited the same sin nature as I did. And, and in regard to the Jewish people, they had experienced thousands of years of kings who horribly hurt and disappointed them. So man, if anybody, I should have sympathy and empathy and, 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 and understanding that these people are just like me. They've been disappointed again and even their best kings fell short of ideal. They went through thousands of years of this. And then I come along and think, dudes, I cannot believe you turned your back on Jesus. We should be able to understand why it's so easy for us to not use scripture as our guide to show us who the Savior is and instead allow our sinful desires or our pain or our disappointments to tempt us to manufacture our own idea of we want the Savior to be. So our text this morning of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem with the shouts of Hosanna on Palm Sunday, palms being waved, only to be crucified on Good Friday, helps form our main point. It's such a simple main point, and I hope it's memorable, and I hope it can be helpful for you as you consider your heart before the Lord this morning. God has called us to follow Jesus for who he is and not for who we want him to be. So I would ask you even right now to just present your heart to the Holy Spirit. Because probably all of us, not the entirety of our heart, but there's probably elements, little corners, little hallways, a little back, back room of your heart where you had an ideal that you thought Jesus should live up to and he didn't. And, and you, there's, this, there's this quiet resentment that you have toward him. Well, let's dig into the text this morning and see if, if the main point of the sermon is the main point of the text. So the first point this morning is Jesus really is the King of Kings. And you see that in verses 12 and 13. This moment is recorded in all four Gospels. And, and the crowd is mentioned a lot, repetition, repetition, repetition. So we want to draw some attention to repetition. Um, the historian Josephus estimated the Passover crowd. This is boggling. 2.5 million people in a, in a city that usually normal population is estimated to be around 40,000. You thought, you thought we have traffic problems in Midland. Um, oh my goodness. And there's a uniqueness about the crowds at this Passover because, man, there's a lot of stirring going on, isn't there? There were already crowds gathered in Bethany, probably more Galilean pilgrims around Bethany, um, that, that came not only to see Jesus, but there was a dude who was dead for days, and he was raised from the dead by Jesus. What did that guy look like? Does he look a little zombie-ish? I mean, what does he look like? I mean, he's raised from the dead, but is there any corrupt? I mean, it's just, you know, there are people like us. They're curious. And so they're coming, and then, and then the people are in Jerusalem already, and they're hearing that Jesus is out in Bethany. So you've got this, this scene where here's Bethany, and Jesus is beginning to make his way toward Jerusalem, and you've got all these folks that are already around, buzzing around him, and then you get the people who are coming out to see him as well. So the chief priests decide that not only does Jesus need to die, this is ridiculous, Lazarus needs to die too. Now stop. Stop and think for a minute. Do you realize how pride and hate and bitterness and then sinful depravity, have you ever noticed that they don't exactly promote wise and sound thinking? 
Psalm 73 says, when my heart was bitter within, my reason left me and I was blind before the Lord. And I acted more like a wild animal than a reasonable human being. Psalm 73. So, you, wait, you want to, let me get this straight. You want us to kill Lazarus again? Um, question. <laughs> he, he's already died once? And Jesus rose him from, raised him from the dead? What do you think we're going to accomplish here? I mean, it was, it, you, really, I had, the, and this is how silly my mind is. I, I just had that whack-a-mole. You remember the game whack-a-mole? This would be like whack-a-Lazarus. Because we kill him, and he just pops up over here. He just raises up over here. And then, and then yeah, that's, let's kill the guy who raises the dead. It's insane, isn't it? Have you made any really weird decisions lately that your family looks at you and goes, I cannot understand the way you're thinking. And it's mainly because you've been embittered. You're angry. You've been resentful lately. Well, with all the expectations, hopes, and fears swirling about, God in his providence determined in advance that this would be the perfect time to present Jesus as the King of Kings. A king who would be both mighty and merciful. Mighty and merciful. So God's king would come, and he would come to bring new life, liberation, freedom, for sure, for sure. But it would not come the way Israel thought it should come, or even the way they wanted it to come. At this point, Israel was not seeing Jesus for who he was, but only for what they wanted him to be. So verses 12 and 13 we see that there's this large Passover crowd that Jesus had heard was coming to Jerusalem. And, and um, uh, the, the crowd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem and they took palm tree branches to greet him. Now at this point, guys, I think this is, again, how many times I've read the Gospel of John and I've had the picture of Palm Sunday as Jesus, I don't know if he was in Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha's house or if he was still in Simon the leper's house, I don't know. But I've had this picture of kind of the limo pulling up and just getting out of the house and immediately getting on the donkey, right? And that he walked, he, he rode in on the donkey the whole way. I don't think that's what the text is saying. I think the text is saying that he began walking in. So let's follow that. You can look at the text yourself. It, but I think that's an important thing to remember, and you'll see why in just a minute. The people have drawn their own conclusion that Jesus had to be the one sent by God to be their king, because, of course, this resurrection thing is a big deal. But at this point, their idea and desire for the king was to save them from circumstances and situations and sorrows. And that's where, if you and I can't identify with that, then one of us is lying. That is so often our cry. And we come by it honestly. None of us like to hurt or have disappointment or, or pain. We come by that honestly. But it's just so easy to conform Jesus to our image of being the savior of our circumstances. That's what's going on. They wanted to be saved from the bully Rome, of Roman rule, the bully that was just bullying their lives. Just a long list of other bullies that had gone before him too. And the waving of the palm branches gives us an understanding of the kind of king they wanted Jesus to be. The palm branches were not being used here in a religious way. Now they were, if you look at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were then used as a part of, of ceremonies and things that had the glory of God and, the, and commemorating the faithfulness of God and those kind of things. But this was a little different here. The palm branch had become a symbol of military, political, and national victory. We could say that this was a celebration of Jewish nationalism. We could take it, we could like it to waving a flag on the 4th of July. Kids, listen to what I just said. You're going to help me in a minute. It was a symbol of the hope that a king would one day come to put an end to oppression and persecution and captivity that Israel faced again and again over the years. Nothing wrong with that unless you think that is your biggest problem. The, guys, the stuff on the outside of us is never our biggest problem. 
It's the sin on the inside of us. It's the unbelief on the inside of us. That will always be our biggest problem. It won't be Satan. It won't be sickness. It will be a sinful response to the revelation of God or an unbelief to God. That starts on the inside of us. The history of the palm branch representing political, military, and national freedom stemmed back to when the Seleucid Empire ruled over Israel about 200 years prior to Christ's birth. About 150 years before that, there was the, the Maccabees. You've heard of the Maccabees. And, and the, the final, there was several heroic Maccabees, but one finally came named Simon the Maccabee. And he drove the Seleucid Empire out of Israel. And when he did, he was celebrated with a parade and the waving of palms. And it became such a symbol of their national identity that the palm branch was engraved on their coins. It became a symbol of nationalism, of an independent Israel. Again, nothing wrong with that unless you want that more than you want the glory of God. And that pageantry was combined with the crowd shouting phrases from Psalm 118. Hosanna, which means give salvation now, or can also mean salvation has come. It could mean either one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this psalm was always quoted at Passover. Every Passover, this would have been. It was one of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. Always quoted at Passover. The palms weren't always used at Passover. And so I put the, the, a portion of the psalm so you could get a context of the psalm. The people were sadly not looking at it in its context. But this is why we need to see Jesus for who Scripture reveals him to be, not what our, our desires want him to be. And, and who Scripture reveals him to be will, we, will be way better than what you ever thought you would want him to be. So let's th throw that out there. So this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Eric, great choice of songs. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. There's a Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, there's, there's, there's salvation imagery there. There's, there's the cornerstone that's being rejected there. There is a king of kings being highlighted here, but not in the framework they are expecting. And the context was, was one that would... The, the, Psalm 119 is calling for a savior to save them from their biggest problem, and that being their sin and the judgment their sins deserved. Then they tagged on an extra phrase that wasn't in Psalm 118, and then they throw in, even the king of Israel. Nothing wrong with that. I can understand that, can't you? The people are hoping that they could have another king like David, a David who would stand up to Goliath, the Goliath of the Roman Empire. That's the new Goliath. This is the Goliath 2.0. This, this is the Goliath of the Roman Empire. And, and uh, the, uh, the Goliath that was, was the militarial giant ruling over us. Guys, when you study the story of David and Goliath, do you understand that Goliath didn't represent mainly a military threat against Israel? We've, I taught this wrong to my boys for quite a few years. I did the classic thing that, you know, we, we did this thing of, uh, was it? Donut. Donut Man song, Goliath. We sang a song and all this. And, and the boys were always David. The boys were always David. And Goliath was the big bad dude. And, and, and if you follow Jesus, guys, God will give you the ability to just knock Goliath out of the park. That was never the intention of Scripture. Remember, the intention from Genesis to Revelation is to point to Jesus, not to David. David represented Jesus. You and I aren't David. You know who you and I are? We're the scaredy cat Israelites. <laughs> Trembling, here's a trembling quote, Eric. Trembling because Goliath means certain death. That's how we should feel about sin. Sin means certain death and you're, you're helpless to save yourself from it. 
That's what Goliath represented. And unless God sent a king who could deliver us from sin, we are hopeless. And David represented a better king who would come named Jesus. So even this and their idea of David and Goliath could be, it could be interpreted wrongly. It's not that their hope for a king didn't have some sort of spiritual component. They were, after all, looking to God to provide the king. So there was a spiritual component to it. But it's that their spiritual component wasn't the foundation and the goal of their desire. Freedom from sin and being made right with God and doing the will of God so that he be glorified over all nations uh, from uh, preeminently as of the coming of Christ with the gospel. That was not their chief motivation. They sought, I'm just going to read what I've got. I don't want to just, I'm going to try carefully how to write this out. They sought to use their religion toward the goal of achieving their political and nationalistic goals. And when you do that, you reinterpret the kingdom of God into political terms. And when they did that, their goal of nationalism actually was idolatry. It was idolatry. We should have some sympathy for that, shouldn't we? For how Israel came to make those mistakes and commit those sins. Haven't we seen the uniqueness of the gospel compromised when it becomes a stepping stone to a larger political goal? Rather than the power of God unto salvation for repentant sinners. We can't let the gospel be subservient to any political goal. But let's get out of the realm of politics. We can't let the gospel be subservient to our personal agendas. If we do that, we compromise the power of the gospel to save and transform lives. A gospel that serves a political agenda will never change people's hearts. That's what's so horrible about it. Now, it might change someone's politics. That could happen. But it can never change hearts. The forgiveness of sins and a changed heart is what people most need. We can't use Jesus as a means of advancing our own agendas. How often we want Jesus for what he'll give me financially or legally or maritally or sexually or in my health or in my business or in my sports or in my academics. And and that's my goal. And Jesus is just my little platform to get me what I most want. The achievement of having my idol. Either we use Jesus to accomplish our goals or Jesus uses us to accomplish his goals. What's it going to be for you? We are thankful for people who are willing to stick their necks out on the line in public service, in elected office, and who seek to be salt and light in this world for the thriving of our nation. We thank God for that. We pray for more of those people. We just can't let the politics be the ultimate goal. The advancement of the gospel has got to be our ultimate goal. And boy, did Jesus not turn out to be the king they wanted. Instead, by Friday, he's just this bloodied has-been. He's in Roman custody. He's not ruling over Rome. He's standing next to a criminal called Barabbas. They wanted this incomparable king. But what they got was just a beaten blasphemer, at least in their eyes. And as we feel the deep tragedy of their words, the blindness of their hearts, God forbid that you think you'd be any different. One of the songs we sing says something like this. We would be ashamed to hear our mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. And then Jesus does something to disappoint them. (laughs) So get the thought. He was walking, and now there's this donkey. Ready? Kids, get ready. So he's going to... Let me ask you. This would be a trick question. 
Does Jesus ever purposely disappoint you? Not to be mean. What's the problem? The problem is not Jesus. But is he wrong to disappoint your wrong expectations? No, he's not. It's actually a very loving thing for him to do. There's many times, guys, Jesus disappoints our expectations in order to deliver us. His disappointing us is to deliver us. And that's what's going to happen here. So he provides this nonverbal yet very literal sermon illustration to help them see what kind of king he really was. And what was the sermon illustration? Yee-haw! <laughs> I'm sorry. That was so silly to do that. But it was a donkey. It was a donkey. So now, would kids fifth grade, five years old through fifth grade, would you come join me? And could I get a couple of parents to help? And we'll move this over here. So guys, come join me right here in the middle. You just kind of get on the steps and you can be right up here. So thanks for being willing to help me today. Miss Jan's going to help us as well. So have you been following along so far? So we're to the, we're to the part where the people have already been waving what? They've been waving what kind of branches? Palm. Palm branches. Great. Great listening, guys. Great listening. So they've already been raving, raising palm branches because they just want Jesus to set them free from this big old bully. We could call him a giant. We could call him Rome. Very good, you guys. Very Ooh, I love these kids. You guys, it's awesome. Oh, I, I wish I knew these things when I was your age. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little bit of an, a kind of reenactment of this. But this time, there's a giant. And here's what the giant. This is the giant that you need to be, you're going to need to be rescued, okay? You guys. You, well, kind of like Goliath, but worse and bigger and yuckier. And you know why? Because he's the giant who destroys. No, no, no. He's the giant who destroys the fun of children. Now, you know, when I, my kids were growing up, they thought that giant was daddy. Ah, yeah, that, daddy destroys fun. But this is a giant. So imagine this. How many of you have computer games? Oh, my goodness, you guys. Hide him. Hide him. He's coming to get him. You're not going to have him. He eats him for lunch. He eats them for lunch. How many girls? How about this? You know what? For the first time in 63 years, do you know what I did this past week? I played Barbies. <laughs> I did. Not with, not with Miss Jan or not, I didn't like not by myself. So I have a little three-year-old granddaughter and she said, Papa, will you play Barbies with me? <laughs> this giant hates Barbies. He hates Barbies. He hates... You guys, don't you need somebody to save you from the fun destroyer? Say yes. Say amen. No. Oh, come on, you guys. Amen. How about one... On the count of three, give me a big amen. One, two, three. Amen. amen. Okay. Well, I've got... Oh, are you ready? We're going to need somebody powerful to, to save us from the fun destroyer. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to form two rows. And this is where parents, I could use some help here. I want you to form two rows. Let's don't bump into the, to, the, um, to the keyboard. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to start the row right here and then go to the end of the platform and on this side too. Okay, and then Miss Jan, would you come? Here we go, come on, come on. Here we go. Okay. And then if maybe some other parents could help pass these out. So everybody, instead of a palm branch, we're going to have a flag. Because you really believe that there is a hero coming who is going to be able to save you from the fun destroyer, okay? Yeah, these are little flags. Okay. Everybody got a flag? Okay. Okay, you guys, here we go. Here we go. So in the Bible, when Jesus was, was coming, they said, Hosanna. But we're not in Israel, we're in Texas. So, 
So here's what we're going to say. We're going to say, yee-haw. Can you say yee-haw? Yee-haw. Wave your flags. Yee-haw. Wave your flags. And then say, and how about this? Save us from the fun destroyer. Okay. Oh, you guys get ready. Get ready because there is somebody who's coming to save you from the fun destroyer. Are you ready? Stay right there. Stay right there. Don't know. No peeking. No peeking. No peeking. You're going to be disqualified. I'm going to take all of your fun away right now. You guys, you guys, do you, what do you think? Do you think the, 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 it's got to be somebody powerful. Do you think maybe he should come in like on a jet with, with missiles firing? Or maybe he should come in like in a tank ready to get this fun destroyer. Oh, no. Watch how this guy comes in. encouraging guys yes, it is. this is not very encouraging okay now guys come on back here to the front come on back here to the front come on back here to the front so do I do I look very powerful sitting on this thing do, do you know how painful it is for me to sit on this thing? <laughs> so, yeah, sit down, guys, sit down. You know, maybe, so this, this doesn't look like I have the power to overcome the fun destroyer, does it? But, you know, maybe the fun destroyer is not your biggest problem. Maybe it's your disobedience to God your disobedience to mom and dad, your selfishness with your brothers and sisters. Maybe sometimes you lie. Maybe sometimes you just, you just get angry and you want to hurt someone. That's your biggest problem. That's the giant you need to be put down. And what is that called? Sin, isn't it? And you need a savior to come into your life to forgive you from all of those sins, but then to give you the power to actually be loving and kind and obedient. That's the savior you most need. And even just a gooberhead old pastor dude can point you to him. I don't have any strength to save you from that, do I? But Jesus does, but Jesus does. So we're gonna pick the story back up with Jesus getting on the donkey, okay? Thank you for helping me this morning. Guys, could you say thank you to our kids? And, and moms and dads, would you take over the flags? Uh, otherwise, we're going to have to call 911 at some point, I think, probably during the, during the service. If you're visiting with us today, we don't do this every Sunday. Um, but I thought how unique a moment this would have been to draw our kids into the story. Jesus is the mighty king. So here's the second point. But he's a mighty king by being a wounded conqueror. He's a mighty king by being a wounded conqueror. So he starts walking toward Jerusalem. The palms are waving, the hosannas are shouting, are being shouted. But see, this, doesn't this get you? Jesus sees all of that, hears all of that, knew it was coming. You remember the other gospel accounts said he had already planned this. He had already planned for his disciples to go get a donkey mama and her baby donkey and to be ready to bring them at his command. 
This is, this is supposed to affect us. This is supposed to, I mean, the way the kids, it's not the same at all by any means. We're talking about the king of kings, the savior of the world. But, but just this thought of, oh, here comes this military power. This one, if he raised the dead, he could probably snap his fingers and get rid of Caesar. And then they see him on a donkey. It was supposed to shake them up. See, that's where I think the stories just become too familiar to us. We're just so used to Jesus on the donkey that we've lost the trembling of how he was actually disappointing their expectations in order to deliver them from their sins. So that's, that's what's happening here. And so he stops in his steps and he gets on the donkey. And this is a fulfillment now. This wasn't just an idea he had, a good idea. This was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Um, a fulfillment of that prophecy as well as a sermon illustration. He doesn't have any microphones. He, he, can't, he just can't stop and say, hey, hang on, guys, you're, very, you're being unbiblical here. There's bazillions of people shouting and cheering, so they use the vehicle of an illustration. He uses the vehicle of an illustration. They might have been perplexed and even disappointed but you know what? Have you, ever, have you ever had moments you kind of paused and you knew, I probably am not headed down the right road here, but you were so driven after your goal and agenda. You still, you were convicted. You, there was a little time you, you thought, I shouldn't do this, but you still pushed on and they still pushed on with their hosannas and hallelujahs and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and creating their own breeze by the shaking of the, of the palm branches. Well, here's the context for Jesus riding in on the donkey to present himself as the conquering king. But the context is as a wounded conqueror so he could save us from sin and judgment. That's what, we, that's what they needed more than they need saving from Rome. And that's what you need. More than you need saving from the worst circumstances. And I, please hear this. I am so sad. We want to come alongside you if you're going through a really rough situation or circumstance. We want to walk with you through it. Jesus loves to walk with you through it. He's a good friend. He's a, he's a good, good father. But we can't mis mistake what the worst problem is. So here is the context from Zechariah 9. It's quoted a little bit in, in, your, in our text. But this is, this is more fully presented. And I think there's going to be a few of you, I hope and pray, are going to really grab onto this and find a sense of, of freedom maybe today that you haven't experienced recently. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Just to go a little further here, do you know what R.C. Sproul says about this? He said that the, the donkeys in Israel were actually a smaller breed than other donkeys. They certainly wouldn't compare to West Texas donkeys. <laughs> they, they were smaller. And this was not just the regular mama donkey. This was a colt of the mama donkey. But even if you rode on a regular Jewish donkey, if you were a man, your feet would still touch the ground. They were that small. So, there, so it, it was a ridiculous picture of me trying to ride that. What is that called, Sarah? Balance bike. Balance bike. Balance bike. Um, it was equally as ridiculous looking. Because if, the, if they're going to get any movement on it, the guy has to pick up his feet or, pick, or pit, pull his feet up this way in order to trot along. And this is on the colt of the donkey. There's a message being shared, isn't there? And then he goes on and he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, wounded conqueror, 
I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is a word for some people today. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners, not of Rome, of hope. Did you ever know that as a Christian, God has made you a prisoner of hope? Wow. I declare that I will restore you double, he goes on to say. The text is saying that he's not going to come with chariots and horses or with weapons of war. He's not coming to take the lives of others. He's coming to give his life as a sacrifice for the many. This is the blood of his covenant. This is his conquering strategy. The scene is typically called the triumphal entry, but the triumphal, the entry, the triumph wasn't in the entry. The triumph was in the exit. The triumph was his exit from Jerusalem. He enters with a donkey carrying him. He exits with carrying his own cross and your cross and my cross. The only royal treatment he received was done in arrogant mockery of him. A crown of thorns pressed into past his flesh, trying to grind them into his skull. A royal colored robe on his blood-stained back so that as the blood clotted on and it would stick to the robe. And then they would rip the robe off so it would just open up the wounds again. And a stick in his hand as his royal scepter. Yet this apparent defeat was our great victory. He died as a sacrifice for sin. He rose on the third day in power and victory. He ascended into heaven to rule and reign at the right hand of God, where he's always praying for us. And he promises to come again to put a final end to all sin and death and darkness and evil. And then he would give his Holy Spirit to indwell all those who believe in him so that they can not only experience, experience the forgiveness of sins, to be counted as righteous, to be adopted as sons and daughters, but also to receive healing for their broken hearts. That's a part of salvation. God hates all the wounds that we've carried. He hates the pain that we've suffered. And he's the healer of the brokenhearted, isn't he? That's part of the good news of this. He gives us a desire to obey God for the glory of God. He gives us the joy of being satisfied in Christ. He gives us the grace to progressively be transformed in the character of Christ. He gives us the power to live on mission for Christ in making disciples locally and globally. So do you see that when Jesus saves us, we're no longer prisoners of Rome. We're no longer prisoners of suffering and sorrow, and circumstances. My precious wife has helped me, and, and so have Alan, and, and Hugh, and, and then Steve, and Eric, and our leadership team, and Marcus. And I, I, go, I often go back to think that I'm a prisoner of my childhood, of the pain, and demeaning, and abuse I received, that I'm a prisoner of what other people have done for me. And the Lord declares to us this morning, no, you are not. You're a prisoner of hope. That's it. So that doesn't mean that the bully fun destroyer is going to just march off the earth, march off planet earth. Now, there's still going to be hurtful things. We're still going to be oppressed. We're still going to be persecuted. There's still sickness and sorrow and suffering. There's, there's all of those things. But what difference would it make if now, because of Christ in you, your hope of glory, you're a prisoner of hope? What does the fun destroyer, what threat does he ultimately have? I'm a prisoner of hope, you big knucklehead fun destroyer. I'm a prisoner of hope. I'm not a prisoner of of the way my parents treated me. I'm not a prisoner of the abuse I suffered. I'm not a prisoner of the way the church neglected to care for me appropriately. I'm in Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner 
hope. And oh, by the way, there is a day he's coming back not on a donkey, but on a horse. Would you stand with me as we read this last passage? Eric, would you come, please? This is in your notes. Why don't we read this together? Why don't we read this together? Are you ready? Let's read this together, beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's thank him for his goodness. And just so that we'll feel all good, just really, <laughs> we're in this text. It closes with, with the disciples still not getting it. The ones that have followed so closely to him still not getting it. I am so thankful they didn't get it because that makes me feel better when I don't get it. Um, until Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of God. Guys, the cross will always be the best interpretive lens that you'll ever have to discern how to navigate through sorrow and heartache. It reminds you what your biggest problem is. It reminds you the answer to the biggest problem. It reminds you you're saved and you're a prisoner of hope. And now, as you've looked at the cross for your own soul, you look through that cross at the faces and hearts of other people. And how dare we? if we somehow see anyone as hopeless or beyond the reach of God's grace and salvation. We live Christ-like lives toward them, Christ-like mission for them, all because the cross is the blazing center of our lives. And the Pharisees say, well, our strategies are not working. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And we're going to pick up on that theme next Sunday. Okay, so read ahead. Read ahead. Eric, would you go ahead? 